but think of taking your Uber app and you're in a meeting in Plano at okay. Legacy and it's five o'clock in the afternoon and you need to get back to the River District mm-hmm. and you have a vertiport here. You pull your Uber app up just like you do today and you punch in your desired location or uh, destination and their algorithms will figure out the ground pickup for you at your meeting, the closest vertiport, the VTOL will be waiting for you when you get there. You'll get out of the Uber car, get into the VTOL, you'll fly to River District, and then you'll get walk to your office or you'll get your Uber pickup there and it'll take you home. Hello, everyone. Just kidding. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business, investing, and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into The Fort. I am so pumped to have Mike Berry, the president of Hillwood, on the show with me today. Mike has been a great friend, a mentor, and is actually my next door neighbor. So this is even more fun. Mike is the president of Hillwood and one of the founders and creators of Alliance Texas, one of the largest global logistics hubs in the world, and is working on something fascinating, which you'll hear today about turning it into a mobility innovation zone. Alliance has over 43.7 million square feet, over 488 corporate tenants, nearly 50,000 employees, 10,000 homes, and has had an economic impact on DFW north of $70 billion. Enjoy. All right, I'm excited today to have a really good friend of mine, Mike Berry, the president of Hillwood, on the show with me today. Mike and I have been friends for, I don't know, five plus years. Um, Mike has been an inspiration to me and has uh, helped me out quite a bit in my journey. So I'm excited to have a conversation. We're going to cover a bunch today. Um, and so here we go. Mike, thanks for being on. Thanks, Chris. We're, we're not only friends, we're now neighbors. I know. Although we never see each other. This because, is our... Yeah, this is the most we've seen each other since you moved in. I know. Um, we'll change that eventually. Um, well, Mike... We, we still need to bring you the apple pie. The welcome apple pie across I know. the street. I, I'm kind of. I haven't had I'm dessert in like six have. months. I've just kept telling Michael, "Don't get dessert." Mike's bringing over a yeah, pie. Well, we'll 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 make it happen. Cool. Um, well, Mike, thank you again for being with me. Uh, there, I think we can get into some really cool stuff today. But just to kick it off, um, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and your kind of story up until Hillwood and and what it's been like at Hillwood? I'm a Fort Worth native, Yep, and there aren't as many of us today as there used to be, thank, thankfully, because of all the great growth and in-migration that we've enjoyed here in Fort Worth. But Fort Worth native, grew up here, uh, went to school here up until my sophomore year in high school, then I left, went to Virginia, prep school in Virginia, 
that was, you know, I was reluctant to do it, but it turned out to probably be the best thing that ever happened to me. And from there, I went to Vanderbilt University. Probably wouldn't have gotten into Vanderbilt had it not been for my prep school uh, time. Um, back then, it, different than it is today, I, I set foot first day on the Vanderbilt campus sight unseen. I had not made a campus visit. I applied. I was accepted. I packed up my car in a U-Haul and drove from Fort Worth to Nashville with a guy that I'd never met before who I met on that trip. I uh, picked him up in Dallas, who is now a, an associate of mine at the Perot family in Hillwood, Hayes Lindsley. Um, we both arrived and not having seen it, and uh, it was a great, great experience. How did you pick that? I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and I thought if I could make it through pre-med, undergrad at Vanderbilt, my chances of getting into Vanderbilt med school would be enhanced, and that was kind of my mission. And I lasted about halfway through freshman (laughs) chemistry, and they weeded me out quickly. And he told, the chemistry professor told us day one, he said, look, the, the the auditorium was packed. He said, yeah. look at the person on your right. Look at the person on your left. This time next year, only one of the three of you will still be in, in the pre-med program. And he was right. And you were like, oh, definitely yeah, not going to oh, be I'll be here. Yeah. And uh, I decided fraternity life. And I was the Budweiser campus representative. <laughs> so uh, I actually sold Budweiser on campus to the, the Greeks and, the, and some of the bars around I decided that was a lot more fun than yeah. studying chemistry. So I finished Vanderbilt feeling like I didn't have much of a business base because it was a liberal arts uh, program at a university. Went to TCU, got my MBA. That helped me get an opportunity as in between year one and two to go to work for Woodbine Development, which was Ray Hunt's company in Dallas, who was one of the few Dallas developers doing a lot of big projects in Fort Worth at that time, and they needed a Fort Worth native on their team, even just somebody to be a runner. So I got, I fortunately became their intern. Yep. And that was kind of the beginning of my real estate career. And and the Hunt vision and the Hunt ethic, ethical focus and business philosophy and the Hunt long-term approach to capital investment and real estate very similar to what I've been doing for the last 30 years with the Perot family. So it was a great way to build a platform that I carried forward to today. You mentioned something in there. You said that going to the prep school in Virginia changed your life. Why was that? Um, I was, you said it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, because it taught me complete independence. Um, you know, went there without really knowing anyone, had to make my own friends, had to learn how to study differently, had to be focused, had to build, um, you know, a whole network of new relationships. Yep. And basically, it was like I went to college three years before I went to college. Right. So when I got to college, I was three years ahead of everybody else as yep. a freshman. And that just, as you know, in anything you do, if you've got some experience more experience than the people you're around, it usually allows you to move ahead faster. So yeah. I think it really helped me. 
Well, Hillwood and and uh, as a lot of Fort Worthians know, Hillwood is connected to Alliance, but the whole story is super fascinating. So you go to Woodbine and then you get recruited over to Hillwood, but that's because you also had a great relationship at the company. Yeah, uh, I didn't I didn't talk about that with the <laughs> Vanderbilt relationship. Um so uh my sophomore year we started we kind of ran a rush fraternity rush right. and there was a big group of Dallas um freshmen who were there and we had a little bit of a Texas uh focus and Ross Pro Jr was one of the freshmen that we were rushing pretty okay. heavily and we, he obviously, he became an SAE. We were together for three years. We were officers of the fraternity. He was completely different than I was. I was, as I mentioned earlier, I was the Budweiser campus representative. I became social chairman of the fraternity. So I was responsible for planning and, and throwing all the parties. Ross, on the other hand, became president of the fraternity, and he was responsible for keeping us out of trouble yeah. and representing <laughs> the brand. Um, but you know, sometimes opposites attract. Right. And we became very good friends. And, um, then I came back, went to TCU, as I mentioned, then, it, then Woodbine, he went to the air force and flew F4s Yep. and ended up back at Carswell air force base here in Fort Worth, which is now joint reserve base. And that kind of brought us back together because he had a passion for real estate. I was already here in the real estate business with Woodbine. So he reached out to me and we started talking and one thing led to another over a couple of years, really. And then Alliance, when Alliance started, he said, you got you to gotta join the team. So it wasn't quite that easy, but that's kind of yeah. how it happened. We would have been very good friends in college. Um, I think I was a rush captain. I was a social chair. I didn't sell Budweiser, but I'm pretty sure I cleaned out the, uh, what's the boxed wine called? Um, uh, Damn. I don't know. We used to clear out the boxed wine section. Gallo? No, was, what, uh, no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. We'd, yeah. we'd play slap bag. Franzia. Yeah. Franzia. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, Franzia. Yeah. <laughs> it's like five bucks for more wine than I definitely needed. Um, all right. So I really want to get into how Alliance was conceived because it's. I'll use some phrases that a lot of real estate people will know, but if you're not real estate, you might not know. It's the world's first industrial airport and what that means. It's one of the, ma it's one of the major international intermodals of the world, and it started on these thousands of acres of vacant land north of Fort Worth. So, like, how was the original kind of idea starting to get baked? I don't want to stay within the boundaries of the time frame of your podcast because okay. it's a long story, but okay. I'll, I'm going to try to – I'll give you kind of the – well, the well, high point evolution. Okay. Well, this is a six-hour episode. So yeah, good. We, maybe we can do multi parts. We'll be home for dinner. So I, I mentioned that Ross was here in Fort Worth flying jets, but he also he and his dad both always had a passion for real estate. You know, most people don't know that Mr. Pro Senior, who just recently passed away, he was really one of the first visionaries of large-scale master plan development. Legacy, which is considered one of the you know, most vibrant uh, master plan office developments in the country, right. certainly in this region, yep. 
he started Legacy with wow. EDS. He okay. went and bought that land. He had the vision to move the EDS headquarters there. He put a team together to plan it. So it was in Ross's blood. Real estate was, even though people think of the Perot family and Ross Perot Sr. as an information technology entrepreneur, he also had a real estate passion. Right. So Ross always liked real estate. He and his dad started looking at Fort Worth and said, you know, if North Texas grows like it has, and if Dallas has done what it's done growing north, eventually with DFW Airport in the middle, eventually Fort Worth will grow to the north. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge amount of undeveloped land along the 35 corridor north of Fort Worth that literally had not been touched. From Loop 820 all the way to Denton, there was nothing. Right. And so they started buying land on, on speculation, mm-hmm. just as investment. Yep. And they put, you know, these blocks of land were showing up. The market, this was before 86, so they were paying top of market pricing. Right. But assembling several thousand acres. And about that time, the FAA was doing a study of the DFW airspace, looking at DFW airport and making sure that the market had the right infrastructure to protect the growth of DFW. And one of the things that came out of that study was there's a gap in between Fort Worth and Denton where there really is no plans for an airport to fill that hole to round out the circumference around DFW. Right. So they began to look at where can we put an airport. Right. And that's where Ross and the FAA and the whole idea of Alliance came together. Okay. FAA's looking at where we can put an airport. The Perot family owns a lot of land. Ross is an aviator. Yeah. It, they got together. Ross said, let's work on this. And as he got involved, the idea got bigger. He did what he's always done best. He went out and talked to the customer. Mm-hmm. Bell, Lockheed, at that time, General Dynamics, people like FedEx, Fred Smith, and said, you know, if you built an airport from scratch, what would you build? What do you need? Right. And thus, the idea went to this concept of building a big piece of infrastructure that could accommodate industry, not just Cessna 172s. So that's how it evolved. And then from there, it was it was a lot of heavy lifting to get Fort Worth on board because they were going to have to annex all of this land way, way north of where their current city limit boundaries were. We needed water. We needed roads. We needed FAA. So a very unique partnership of FAA, Fort Worth, and Hillwood. At that time, we were the Perot Group was formed. Right. Everybody said, let's do it. We fronted all the land and all the soft capital. FAA funded the airport. Fort Worth agreed to annex and serve. And that's how it, that's how it happened. Could something of this have been done without a, a family using their long-term capital? Like this couldn't have been a private equity run deal. This, this required a no lot way. of patience. Yeah. Very, very patient. Yep. In relationships, deep, deep relationships, political, yep. community, corporate. And, you know, the Perot commitment to Texas and their history, even at that time, Mr. Perot's uh, legacy in Texas was was pretty big. Right. And he had done a lot. Right. Um, and I, I don't think it, an institution or a private equity group couldn't couldn't. Uh, 
pull that off. Couldn't pull that off. And you certainly couldn't do it today. I don't think we could do it today. That's my, was my next question. Is this kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity? I mean, even with, even if you found the the land and everything else, just given the way the world's run today, could it have ever come together like it did back then? So much has changed over 30 years. I mean, from funding, you know, public Funding, federal funding, FAA funding is not there. Right. It was there back then. It was there. We used discretionary money, mm-hmm. uh, which you which doesn't exist today, just because of the the tightness. Yep. Um, environmental regulations totally different. Yep. Um, local politics are totally different. You know, there's just so much scrutiny on everything that to to take a, a mayor like Bob Bolin. And in the council that he had at the time and the leadership cohesion that they had as right. a city and as a as a body. Um, you know, it took it just took some guts. Yeah. And uh a lot of people stepped out and a lot of people bought in to the vision. You just don't build projects like that speculatively. Yep. Um so the buy-in was was you know, it would be hard to get today. The, the, the last thing is back to politics. You had Bob Bolin, I mentioned, Mayor of Fort Worth, right. who was also president of the National League of Cities, which is the national organization of mayors. So he had, he had stature. Right. You had Gib Lewis from Fort Worth, who was speaker of the Texas House of Representatives. And you had Jim Wright, who was our airport alliance was in his district, who was Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives. And on the other side of the line, the north half of the airport was in Dick Army's district, who was who went on to become minority whip, I think, shortly thereafter. And he was Republican. Jim Wright was Democrat. So you had bipartisan support, two prominent leaders in Congress. You had the Speaker of the House of Texas and a well-recognized, strong mayor. So, you know, it's hard to find that that combination today. That is like the NBA all-star team of politicians aligning to make something like that happen. Yeah. So back to answering your question, could you do it again today? I don't, I don't think so. One thing I read about when I was preparing for this is that it's a foreign trade zone. What is a foreign trade zone, and was that part of the initial setup of this, or is this something you got later? And how do you be, how do you get a foreign trade zone designation? Foreign trade zones have been around since I think the seventies. Okay, I think seventy two is when the original legislation was passed to create foreign trade zones. It's a federal program. You have to work through um, customs, Department of Commerce. I think I guess it's Department of Commerce has total oversight, but um, basically if you bring, if you have a foreign trade zone and you have goods that are dutied, so it's very, foreign trade zones are very popular right now with all the tariff talk, by the way, they're making a resurgence, but I'll. I'll, So people are trying to get their product in before the new tariffs are hit. Well, you can, when you bring your product in, if there is a duty on your product, right. you bring it in to a foreign trade zone in the United States and it's not recognized as it ever entered the country. Ah. So you don't pay the duty as long as it stays within the trade zone. But w- while it's in the zone, you can take that part and put it in an assembly process and cr- with other parts and create a higher value product. And you get taxed. Your duty is levied only when the product leaves the zone, 
and it's levied on the lesser of the duty that would have been on the individual part or the duty on the finished product. So you get the benefit of the value add savings. You get time value savings on the interest not having had to have paid that duty the day it crossed the border. And if you don't like that, you can reship the product out to another country and it's recognized as it never entered here. Um, or if you don't like the product, you can destroy it while it's in the zone and then it's, it's non-existent. So not that that buys you anything, but that's just one other thing right. you can do in a foreign trade zone. So it's a very effective tool for the right companies, for companies who import high-value parts or products that have a heavy duty rate associated with them. It's, but for a long time, it really was, it was too complicated. People, CFOs really didn't understand it. They didn't want to go through the paperwork and bureaucracy, so it really wasn't heavily utilized. Right. Today... It's, it's enjoying a resurgence because of all the tariff uh, stuff. It really is meaningful. Is it a short-term resurgence, and meaning if the tariffs kind of go away again, the, the, t- the foreign trade zone is— No, because is, I, think, I think once people, even if the tariffs go away, right. there's still going to be tariffs and duties on a lot of product, and there have been for decades. Yep. Um, so I actually think it's a great— marketing window because people who haven't been using it will now be educated on it and will have realized the savings. And even if the tariff rates go down, they'll still understand the economic benefits. So I think you're going to have more users going forward, regardless of what happens on the tariffs. So I would imagine that's had a positive impact on Hillwood's business there. More businesses are trying to get operations going within the trade zone. Yes. Yes. I love it. Alliance, just to paint a picture and, and please add to this, is 26,000 acres. There's been over 43.7 million square feet of commercial, over 48,000 um, households, and probably more statistics. Was the original vision for this to almost become a city? And I have to admit something, and I, I'm so um, embarrassed to admit it, but I'll do it. Until about two years ago, I thought Alliance was its own city. I did not realize it was in Fort Worth because it's called Alliance, Texas. It's and not. And I've lived here for 14 years. Don't mention that to any of our local elected not, officials. I will not. Especially Mayor Price. I will not. And I, 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 um, I'm ashamed of it. I do know now it's part of Fort Worth. But I'm saying that in the context of like it really is its own city. And it's ta- it's, it is not its own city. It is at the scale of its own city. Was that the original plan? I mean, we always had, in, even in the early days when the airport was kind of the focus, we still had in the land portfolio blocks that we had planned and were actually developing early on for residential development because we knew if we were going to recruit companies here, you got to remember back then, like I said, you could drive your car from downtown Fort Worth to where the airport is today. And once you passed Loop 820, it was wheat field, right. see for miles. So we had to put residential on the ground to be able to point to it and tell these companies, your employees can live close to the workplace right. because they'd come out there and they go, where, where, where am I going to hire my people from? Right. So we did know that we had to create an integrated plan, but at the scale and diversity 
of where we are today versus back then, no, we didn't envision. We own a lot more land than we did back then. Right. We went from, call it 10,000 acres to 26,000. We have a lot more product. We have a lot more innovation in our land planning and in our thinking about infrastructure. So it's it's continued to evolve. Right. But... um, it's a fully integrated, even though it's not all one tight contiguous block, it is a fully integrated master plan where we try to connect everybody together. Right. And the Alliance Texas, the branding, we did that probably 15 years ago because on the on the other side of what you said, it was confusing to our customers. Our customers would come in and they'd say, well, this is Alliance and it was Fort Worth Alliance Airport. And Fort Worth had X amount of land in the boundaries of Alliance. And then you had Hazlitt and you had Westlake and you had um, Roanoke. And there were all these different. You had Tarrant County and Denton County. You had two school districts. You had Northwest and Keller. I mean, we spanned such a vast area that we touched all these cities and people couldn't really, they got confused. Right. So from a marketing standpoint, we just put the Alliance Texas brand on it really more to promote that it's a Texas project not to try to present ourselves as an incorporated municipality. Right. So it was really, it was really more marketing yeah. branding than it was trying to, you know, be yeah. political or make any of our partner cities yeah. upset. Well, it's incredible. Now, now to talk within that, you come over in 87. Can you just talk a little bit about what your job has been as part of that growth and maybe how you've changed as a leader over time within that company? I'd imagine you're managing a lot more people today or leading a lot more people than what you started with. There's a lot we could probably talk on there. First, there was me. Um, so Ross, managing Ross yourself. Was, well, Ross was leading me, but then my first assignment is actually 88 when I came came over from had you given up the Budweiser Association by the time you started at Hillwood I you know it always (laughs) kind of I always carried it with me but now I'm a Coors Light guy so the my friends at Anheuser-Busch wouldn't be happy with the way I've way I've changed I'm with you allegiances um but you know first thing was to establish a presence in Fort Worth because at that time you know we just we were just about to start construction on the airport and we didn't really have a presence and you know back in in that era you know Dallas people coming to Fort Worth to do business and not being you know here not having an 817 phone number and you oh, know, yeah. if you weren't Fort Worth you, you were always kind of you know, distrusted. Yep. So th- my first job was being a Fort Worth guy, get an office, get a presence. We need to make sure that people know we're committed uh, fully to mm-hmm. Fort Worth. So, so I stood up an office, hired Judy Franco, who's still with us. And basically she and I ran the Fort Worth side of Hillwood for a little while. And then um, about six months in, I realized, you know, we're going to have to build a team. First thing, first person I recruited was Bill Burton from Austin. He was at Lincoln. Convinced him to move up here, um, which was great because he, he's been unbelievable for 30 years. And then from there, we just continued to add 
people. I mean, we had a few of our Dallas associates come over, and then we grew and 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 continued to hire. And now, um, if you roll up, if you basically take that seed corn and look at at the number of people that it, that are managing pieces of that part of our business today, it's two hundred and sixty-two people. I think. Wow! And that's just that's about. 60% of Hillwood. We, you know, we've also grown a huge industrial business over the years out of what we learned at Alliance. And right. now we're across the country and even in Europe. And we've got a huge residential business that also grew from what we did at Alliance. Those early days I was telling you about where we had to build residential so we could recruit companies. Right. We learned a lot about master plan residential development and started doing more of it. And now we're um, we're the largest lot developer in North Texas, um, and we're doing business in multiple other markets, doing other uh, residential communities. So Alliance has almost been an incubator for a lot of businesses that are expanding. It's kind of the Hillwood incubator. Right. And or has been the Hillwood incubator, and still to this day, mm-hmm. it's the incubator. I mean, we've created, we have service businesses that we've built off of the real estate platform that run from airport management companies, um, FBOs, we have a water company, we have a landscape company, we have a property management company, we have a construction business. Uh, We're just launching, um, recently we announced uh, the that we're going to create a mobility innovation zone at Alliance. And what is that? Well, it's really cool. It's kind of the one of the coolest things. It's that incredible. I've ever worked on. Somebody sent me y'all's deck on it the other day. Good. It's awesome. Good. Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be fun. I mean, we're just getting started. We're literally like four months into the trying to put a business strategy around it. We it started with our relationship with Uber. A little over two years ago, Uber reached out to us and asked us to join their team to help them figure out how to build an infrastructure system to support their Uber Elevate business, or really, more broadly, the future of urban air mobility, because they believe, and a lot of other people believe, that there will be, in major metropolitan areas, there will be a market for these new type of aircraft for VTOLs, vertical takeoff and lift aircraft. Think of a drone the size of a helicopter that you can get in and fly from downtown Dallas to Fort Worth to downtown Fort Worth or all over. So it's, like taxis of people air that taxis. are just kind of flying? Air taxis. But it'll be baked in if, if Uber becomes a leader, which I think they have a good chance to be, but there'll be others, right. other service providers and even the the OEMs, the manufacturers are likely to get into it. But think of taking your Uber app and you're in a meeting in Plano at okay. Legacy. And it's five o'clock in the afternoon and you need to get back to the River District. Mm-hmm. And you have a vertiport here. You pull your Uber app up just like you do today and you punch in your desired loca- or, uh, destination. And their algorithms will figure out the ground pickup for you at your meeting, the closest vertiport, 
the VTOL will be waiting for you when you get there. You'll get out of the Uber car, get into the VTOL, you'll fly to River District, and then you'll get walk to your office or you'll get your Uber pickup there and it'll take you home. And so that's their concept. And there's a huge amount of work to be done. There's huge regulatory technology, certification of the aircraft, pilots that you're going to have to train to fly these aircraft because they won't be autonomous right. for a long, long time. So anyway, that we that's what got us exposed to that piece of the disruptive world of mobility. Right. And then on the other side, on the alliance side, we've been working for years with companies like BNSF and J.B. Hunt Trucking and Schneider Trucking and UPS and FedEx and Amazon and well, each and every one of those companies right now is test, are testing new technologies to move freight differently, um, whether it be in the warehouse with robotics, whether it be outside the warehouse with autonomous trucks and all the systems that are needed for those containers to be tracked from point A to point B with an autonomous vehicle and the smart road systems that will have to be put in the roads to track them. So we're watching that movie over here at Alliance. We're watching the other movie with the work we're doing with, with Uber. And we started to find that a lot of the technology people who are providing the AI and the collision avoidance systems and the GPS tracking and the mapping are all the same people. So as we started to look at it, we said, this isn't, even though these are surface and air modes, the systems overlap and we started to map out a matrix of all the people we started to touch. And we said, you know, there's a way for us to take our platform at Alliance and all of this real world stuff. We have a real world test lab basically. And let's help these companies start to interface with one another and let's stand up use cases that actually let them do it in real life over and over and over again so we can prove it up to the regulators and the rule writers and everybody else and the safety people. And maybe we can be a launching pad for commercialization of this whole new industry. And we have a unique platform. No one has a platform like we do. I mean, we have an airport with controlled airspace. We have an intermodal hub that processes a million lifts a year and 3,500 trucks a day. We have 500 companies, 62,000 employees. We have containers and goods moving all over the places. We have all over the place. We have 10,000 residential units in our communities that create a consumer base. And if we can just link all of that up with these new technologies, whether it be autonomous cars for people, whether it be autonomous trucks moving freight to your house or to your warehouse, whether it be drones picking up a package in Amazon and bringing it to your front yard or bringing it to the FedEx hub for distribution, we can simulate all that stuff today. Um, so that's what we're, you got to get buy-in. Mm-hmm. So our big job now is to kind of back to my story about how we put the Alliance thing together. We're trying, we're kind of doing the same thing, but we're doing it with private sector and public sector. And that's the hard part, getting everybody to break their, their silos down. Because most, you know, like Amazon is not 
really sharing their drone technology with the rest of the world because right. a lot of their competitors are also the people we want in the mobility zone. Right. So we've got some heavy lifting to do to br try to bring those pieces together, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's, an, an, it's an unbelievable test bed and there really isn't another place like it. I'm honestly just totally speechless right now. I mean, y'all, the fact that that's happening in DFW and we can talk about the importance of it for the region, but legitimately putting in place an incubator for how the world will move goods going forward. And just like you had talked about of what Alliance has, it's not like there's these uh, hubs all over the country where if they don't do it at Hillwood, they'll just go to one in Houston or wherever. It's almost like we either do it here or we never. Well, they all have to get into an urban environment. Right. And right now, a lot of this testing is going on all over the country, but it's being, it's done in the Mojave Desert or it's done in, you know, down on the Texas Gulf Coast. I went and saw a, demonstra a drone demonstration last week that um, NASA and FAA and Texas A&M are doing, but they're doing it outside of Corpus in an environment that's not nearly as complex and urban as what we can deliver here in DFW. So there's a lot of testing going on of all these technologies, but they're done in isolation in more remote areas. And what we offer is a place where these, they can go to the next level. They can basically come into a dense, complicated urban environment and we can, because none of this stuff will ever go commercial if right. you can't prove the safety case and you can't prove that it works, you know, in an urban setting, whether you're talking about airspace or whether you're talking about a road system that's got a lot of traffic already on it. So we we think we can be that next step towards yeah. commercialization. And, you know, obviously our motivation, the simple motivation is if these companies come here and test, in theory, they'll stay here and they'll need real estate, whether it be office space or test labs or industrial space to build the drones or the, the trucks. So that's kind of the basic long-term play for Hillwood. But beyond that, we're going to find entrepreneurs, startups that are, you know, investment opportunities for us and other venture capital firms. So we need to bring the VC community to the table, which we're working on. And then the regulators and who knows what that might bring. You this know, is huge. It's big. Yeah, it is. It's if somebody had told you 10 years ago this would be what you would be working on and driving forward, like was none of this was on your radar 10 years. I mean, no. maybe, yeah, that's no. how fast the world is moving. Yeah. And it all really, it didn't totally start with the Uber, the phone call from Uber, but that's what kind of got us thinking, thinking because we became exposed to everybody who is developing a, one of those technologies. Uh, that's going to fit in. I mean, we're going to watch. We're, we're in the front row, and not just Hillwood. We, all of us, we. Right. We're on the front row to, uh, of watching a complete transformation in mobility and transportation. And, I mean, you've heard it. You, oh, yeah. You're in all the ULI think tank stuff, and you're watching what's going on, and you hear the consultants and, and the, the think tank folks talk about where we're going just with autonomous driving. 
autonomous oh, vehicles. It's close. Well, the whole freight piece, you know, nobody really talks about the freight side of it, but right. the freight side of it, I think is even lower hanging fl- fruit than the people side of it because, you know, freight doesn't, you know, doesn't, aren't, freight's not living, breathing and right. doesn't have a family. Uh, yeah, Tony, uh, Tony Cream at yesterday's uh, panel we spoke on was just talking about just the dip, like, you know, Amazon's starting the Sprinter van revolution. You got, they've dropped FedEx, they're increasing with UPS. Then you have the, uh, all these companies working on the autonomous movement of this stuff. Um, you know, I was at a, a Singularity University last year and everybody thinks about the technology itself, but then there's the whole conversation around the ethics of autonomous AI driving. If if a autonomous vehicle hits a bystander, whose fault is it? Right. Right. You got to figure yeah. all that out. That I would be curious to see how those laws play out. Um, there's a lot to to think about there. But uh, how about even even a more simple question, like when you start putting autonomous eighteen wheelers on the interstate, at what speed will they drive, and will they switch lanes or will they stay on a dedicated lane? And how does that impact the human driver? Yep. You know, just that sort of stuff is not totally have you actually seen one of uber's what did you call them a vtol vtol i've seen the prototypes i haven't seen one fly i don't think many people have how many people are they supposed to fit four four passengers and a pilot so jerry jones might not be the only person arriving to the cowboys game in an uh Air, airplane or absolutely not I and mean, as a matter of fact using that example um at stadium slash arlington entertainment district would be will be a major vertiport site in the in the future so the jetsons is coming yeah it is it's crazy to think but it's it's coming Man, I really am pretty taken back by that. So it's called the Mobility Innovation Zone. Right. This is right now. Correct. I want. But if you're listening and you want to hear more about what's going on, you could probably Google that and read some more on it. Or yes, I mean because we went public with it um, 60 days ago at the Uber Summit in Washington D.C. And I should also mention that that we partnered with Deloitte. We actually hired Deloitte initially to be our, to help us write the white paper around the concept. And they're still on the team and we're actually launching tomorrow our next phase of work. And I would say now, I don't call them a consultant anymore. I really call them a partner. Yep. I mean, they have a future of mobility practice, which I didn't really understand when we first reached out to them, but they have a team of mobility experts around the world who have all come from the tech space, the automotive industry, the aerospace industry, defense, and they've assembled a team of experts that we're getting the benefit of all that, all that knowledge and their relationships, you know, their Rolodex is huge compared to ours. So we're already way, way further down the road than, than I thought we'd be. So you're at the intersection of how we will move freight, people uh, on land, sea, air, I mean, you name it. And then I also had a question about just seeing what's going in and what's going on inside the walls of these with robotics. And 
Hillwood's kind of view into you're basically seeing how the American business is progressing forward, even looking at the inside of the walls. Like one of my questions was just, what's it like inside of an Amazon facility? Um, I, I'd imagine it's I mean, incredible. You would, when you go in, you go, how in the world does my package get to me the next morning or the same afternoon? Because it's just, it looks, it looks, there's so much movement. Yep. It's almost chaotic, but the systems that they built to drive the movement and process right. that much product that fast right. are so good that you know they, they're able to do it. I would say from a real estate developer's perspective, the things that we're seeing that are most um, impactful and what we're trying to keep up with are you know, first and foremost, clear height. You know, they're pushing, they're stacking these um, fulfillment centers on multi-layer mezzanines inside, you know, what you would look at from the outside and say, well, that's a big warehouse. Well, it's, um, it's actually a very sophisticated um, automation system right. stacked multi-level. So the more they're able to learn how to process more product on a per land square foot via cubic square feet, the more they push developers to build even higher clear height buildings. So that's one thing. Right. And then the structure to support all of that and the power needed to come to the building to support all that is ever increasing. Um, and then, you know, the next move, I think, will be, and we're already starting to see it, will be urban last mile. And you talked about it yesterday in your remarks on the panel, and it's kind of a topic that everybody's looking at, but they're actually starting to really pick sites and buildings for redevelopment for truly urban fulfillment centers, yep. which are going to, you know, change the, the whole capitalization structure and engineering around what we've been doing now on a, you know, million square foot floor plate. Right. When you start to try to do it in an urban core, it gets a little more complicated. So clear height and then integration with these other technologies that I talked about. Autonomous trucks are going to trigger changes to truck courts, dock doors, gate systems, um, you know, um, move, manage, inventory management systems, and then think about drones when drones start either launching from these fulfillment centers with deliveries or bringing to them what sort of receptacle or what sort of pad or what sort of pod are we going to need to attach to these buildings for actual product to get connected to the drone. So we're starting to think about that kind of stuff. And back to the mobility zone, those are things we can actually do today. We could, once we know what the design needs to be, we can actually build a prototype at Alliance and test it. We can either tack it onto an existing building or we'll build a standalone and see if it works. How excited are you about this? I mean, it's, 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 you are one of the only people in the world that are like sitting in this arena right now. I mean, I don't know. I don't, there are a lot of people in the arena. Correct. There's not anyone, there's not many who have. Get to see it all. The, Fully, the ability to fully integrate the platform. That's what I think is, is so exciting. Um, but I will say 
there's a lot of work to do. Yep. I mean, the more I meet and see demonstrations and meet with the people that are in the space, the more I realize, back to what I said about breaking down silos and integrating, there's a lot of people doing bits and pieces. But in order for this, this stuff to really launch, there needs to be a huge amount of, of additional integration. I think that's what we can we can do. If you had to say something today and then we're going to, 10 years from now, we'll meet out in the middle of the street and we'll, uh, we'll go back and listen with to our the, cold with our light. cold Coors Light yeah. um, with an anti-Budweiser koozie. <laughs> and we said, all right, we're going to go back and listen to that episode. What is something you would say that the world will have in 10 years that most people listening might find just shocking? Well, I think, I, I don't know if I can step much further out of the box than I already have. Because 10 I, years ago, you didn't you I mean, didn't in think. 10 years, I, I truly think in 10 years, you will do most of your intra-metroplex commuting yep. via autonomous vehicles of some kind. I'm with you. And I think it's very likely that 10 years from now, you would be a wreck since you have interests in across the whole market. Mm-hmm. You and I both will be regular users of the urban air taxi system. Will my daughter ever have a use for a driver's license? I mean, most people would tell you no. Yeah. Um, I guess that's a, my Uber bill will be higher, but yeah, my car bill will be less. I but guess. the experts say that with, you know, the future pricing will get so, so good that you'll more than offset in multiple Uber trips, the, the cost of owning your car. Well, and if it's autonomous, I mean, you know, we'll see how that plays out, but 70% of the cost of an Uber is the human driving. Right, it. right. And the maximization they'll get out of that autonomous vehicle yep. will be much more efficient than what they're doing today, and so they should be able to drive costs down. I was reading something the other day about Tesla's plan right now. You know, they're building out their autonomous is, you know, you'll go drive your Tesla to work, you'll go in, you'll press like Uber mode, and then that car will take off for the day, go drive people around the city and earn you money. And then by the time you walk out to go home, it'll just be right back in the parking spots. That's, yeah, that's and like the you buy a Tesla, I think they were saying you buy a Tesla for, I don't know, $50,000 and the net asset value on a $50,000 Tesla will be about 275 grand on what it could earn you. Wow. Per year. Well, that's a complete flip from. That's a total flip. Yeah, where it's been. How are the people in at Hillwood like? Is there a balance of new types of talent you're having to recruit, or is the current team like just learning this whole new world? Because it's got to be coming at you really fast. Yeah, it's funny you ask that question. I'll give you a great uh, uh, analogy that Ross gave me the other day because I was talking about how are we going to build the team that we're really gonna need to go forward with all this mobility innovation because it's it's really a much more, you gotta have a much more tech savvy group of people than we have. And he said, yeah, you're right. He goes, we got a lot of great football players, but we need basketball players. <laughs> so we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna have to start adding some different kinds of talent. Yep. But we're also fortunate we got a lot of really creative real estate based people on the team that 
that are versatile. Right. And, you know, I think we can use a lot of the talent we already have and then also bring in some some fresh talent and create kind of a new a new company to to carry this whole thing forward. That's that's really where I'm that's what one of the big things I'm thinking about right now is how to lay out an organization that can start cuz it's going to be a while. Yep. I can't figure out yet how this is really going to make money. Yeah. So you don't want to go too is too that big, part too of your fast. job is to make a profit out of this. Yes. It's not a charity. Yes. No, right it, now. Yes. Um, now, you know, but we're also willing to spend some capital if we can see, you know, line of sight to, to profitability down the road, because I think it's going to, it's not going to happen overnight. One of my questions that sounds boring after talking about, I keep, I want to keep asking about this, but y'all are also at the intersection of the residential side of things and how people are living and I would imagine you're seeing some trends about like things are changing. Um, the, the big house is kind of out. Um, the smaller unit for folks that are moving around a lot more and traveling a lot more is, is making its way in. Like, is there anything big that you're seeing on call it the residential side that 10 years ago you would have probably said didn't see that one coming? I mean, smaller and smarter. Yeah. Uh, as you said. You know, more technology, the kind of like the mobility thing. There's so many people in the space, the smart home space now. You really have to wade through all of the products and offerings and packages that are out there and figure out what's the best one for your market. But all of our homes now that we're delivering are all smart homes, whereas, you know, I'm trying to remember when we first started doing fiber to the home. We, we were the first developer to do fiber to the home in our heritage community. Mm-hmm. And that was probably seven. And it kind of all blurs. Maybe it was a little longer, but seven years ago, nobody else was doing that. Um, then, you know, we started using the Nest system like everybody else did. And now it's totally integrated where you've got your security, your energy management system, your your all of your your cameras, your ring, your all of that is now integrated. So that's kind of expected in the market. Right. Beyond technology, technology, it's all about price point. Right. How do you deliver a great space for a price point that is still you know, affordable within the core of the market. I mean, our problem now is delivering, we need to be delivering product on our single family, 250,000 or below. And it's really hard to do that. Very hard. So the things that we're doing are just what everybody's really doing is looking at townhomes, more density, smaller lots, but cooler product. We're, I was talking to Fred Balda yesterday who runs our Hillwood Communities, which are a residential company. And he is, he's just now hired an intelligence director to really be on the leading edge of investigating all these things, both what, what are others doing around the world and what are the technologies that are out there. He believes, and I, I probably agree, that within the next five years, a lot of people will buy their home 
literally online without mm-hmm. seeing it. You will build your home online just like you do your car right. today, and you'll take delivery of it when the CO shows up and you'll walk in first time. And I think in certain price points, yep. I think that's absolutely true. So we're starting to look at that, and we've actually – through our venture capital group, Perot Jane, we've invested in one of the companies that's developed the the uh, the technology to do that. That people that, that the home builders are now using to help you design and pick and buy your your home online. And with augmented reality, you'll be able to put yeah. on a headset. And yeah, you walk feel like you're home. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're talking to a company out in Silicon Valley called Zero Down, and they're targeting people that have 800 plus credit credit scores, um, income figures of, you know, $150,000 plus their biggest thing is they just don't want to go take all the cash that they've saved and plow it into a house. So it's called zero down, but it's not a, it's not a predatory lending type of deal. They're just saying, Hey, we'll buy the house from you. We'll rent it back on like a triple net lease to you over five years. You take a, we'll take a portion of what you pay us monthly and basically put it into a savings account for you. At the end of five years, you have an option. You can buy the house or we will actually cut you a check for some of your built-in equity and you can go elsewhere. And if you buy the house, if you've saved, uh, the savings is X. If you buy the house, we'll give you X that you've saved plus an additional 3%. So you only have to come out of pocket an additional 5% to close the house. The house, the house price goes up 3% annually. So when you, you're you incentivized to close it quicker. Right. Um, and if you don't, we'll just give you a check and, and you're gone. And um, they've wow. modeled it out to where these people want to pay the premium. Now what they've done is they've gone and partnered with all of these companies like Airbnb and Uber and everything. And they basically add reward points. So your mortgage is one of the only things that doesn't get reward points when you pay it every month. And it's usually your largest expense. So if you pay your mortgage on time every month, we'll put you know, a $5 Uber credit in your reward program. Uh, if you need a handyman, so they call it their concierge app. You can get on any one of those handyman apps and call your guy but you're incentivized to pay on time. If you pay early, you get additional points. And they've created this whole reward bucket. So it's called Zero Down. I was, I'm fascinated by it. Very creative. Very creative. Yeah, I don't know if we'll go see a world where like million dollar homes will become like triple net leases where you get a TI allowance. Because most people buy because they want it custom to them. Right. Not necessarily because they're so fascinated by having to own. Well, you might start seeing five-year leases or here. Yeah. No, that's unbelievable. I and mean, that'll change the whole it will. The whole dynamic of the other thing that, that drives that kind of flexibility. Yeah. And you can leave or yeah. if the institution owns all the million dollar homes, you'll have a lot of like zero down. They plan on opening a, owning a lot of homes and you could just go to the next zero down home or you kind of stay within the community. The second part, without going too far into it, was um I wish the appraisal system would change because I think people would spend a lot more money on a much smaller unit. The price per foot would be through the roof. But if appraisers would start appraising technology and I don't think home builders get enough credit for how efficiently they build the house. It's all about price per square foot. Well, right. they don't ask, you know, how well is it framed, insulated? If, if the appraisers would start changing, I think it would make home builders' life a lot easier. They could sell things for three or $400 a foot 
even if it's still selling something at 200 and you know 50 you're selling a 600 600 square foot unit but you're delivering the rolls royce of a right. 600 square foot unit right and right now you just could never get it appraised you're exactly right we got to change that yeah and that's why i think buying on the internet will be challenging at least in certain in the upper tier price points because quality has a lot to do with preference of that buyer group yep the, the you know the the volume buyer volume home buyers with the reality of the systems can probably get comfortable all right i'm going to switch just a little bit um we'll start coming down the stretch you have managed to build an incredible career with hillwood the things you're working on honestly i'm still speechless on a few of these we will definitely be chatting more offline i hope but you've done all this while raising a family with four daughters how have you balanced everything out for so people? I, so i'm still doing this yeah. <laughs> it's expensive to raise four daughters. i think you're th two weddings in or th two two um, weddings this, down. Uh, my third of the four is um next month so i have three down love it one to go um and two in a year 2019 has been a big year so we had yep. daughter number three got married in april daughter number one gets married next month so your um, your father of the bride speech just keeps getting yeah better yeah, and better yeah you know the short answer or the 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 most important answer is my wife Marilyn and I couldn't have couldn't have done it yeah no it's and it's the rock she, she's allowed me to do what I've done career wise and commit the time and and the energy uh, to it and still figures out ways for me to you know, be dad and patriarch awesome. and, uh, yep. I think Warren it's all about, all about that. Warren Buffett says that it's the biggest business decision of your life. It's who you marry. Yeah. That's, That's right. awesome. Totally agree. If you had to give advice to your 21 year old self or somebody maybe coming out of college, you know, what are the things you would kind of tell them just to how to think about their career as they're getting started? I would say first and foremost, build relationships as often as you can. Go try to get in the door to see people that you admire or people that you'd like to know more about, whether you go to their office and meet with them, whether you grab them at a wedding and try to pick their brain. I think the more you can absorb from people in a direct relationship, particularly people who have experience and wisdom and uh, who you look up to. Yeah. I think you, the more of that you can do as a young person, the better. Plus, you know, it opens up sometimes opportunities that you never would have anticipated, you know, the right place, right time sort of thing. I think that's number one, because I don't think regardless of the world we live in and whether you're in the real estate business or technology business or whether you, whether you're an accountant or sell insurance or in banking, at the end of the day, it's all about doing business is all about relationships. And then the other thing that I think is important, and I still live by this motto, I try to learn something new every day. Yep. No matter how much you get wrapped up in a project or you've got a you've got something you've got to focus on that day you can always take the time to read or explore or try to 
find new information. And I think we can, it's easy for us to do that today, right. much easier than it used to be. Yeah. But you really need to try to learn something new every day and, and you know, broaden. Um, and then for real estate practitioners, and particularly young people who are interested in real estate, and I know you, this is how you built your career, mm-hmm. you know, pay attention, learn your market, drive around, look, understand what's actually happening because you can't read about real estate development or real estate and totally understand it if you don't know how to touch it, feel it, see it, and you find things. Yep. You know, when you're driving around, you see things that a lot of people don't see yep. and you find opportunities too. Um, that's how I got my passion for real estate. When I was at TCU, in my, the first year of my MBA, I would drive around, and that was the boom time, early 80s, so all of the downtown Fort Worth stuff, the city center, Continental Plaza, all that, Las Colinas was booming. Yep. Downtown Dallas, back that was skyscraper era. Yeah. And I was fascinated with all that. Yep. And that's what got me kind of sucked in to want to engage because I, I thought it was exciting. I mean, that's the best thing about real estate. You can see it, touch it, feel it. It's not just paper being, you know, moved back and forth. It's it's real. Is there anybody in particular or maybe a couple people that uh, people that you've looked up to along the way? I mean, first, first answer is my dad like yeah. right off the top. So it kind of made me emotional for a second. That's good. I'm with you, brother. Um, you know, he's incredible influence. And uh, then I would say outside of fam- my grandfather, too. My grandfather, my father first, my grandfather second. Yep. My grandfather was a real estate uh, practitioner, developer, property manager. And he used to walk me around. He was in downtown Fort Worth. He worked for Jesse Jones. So there's some parallels to his career and my career. Jesse Jones was a philanthropist and uh, developer out of Houston who came to Fort Worth in the early days and built some of the first downtown Fort Worth office buildings, the Medical Arts Building, the Worth Hotel, uh, the Texas Electric Building, the Oil and Gas and Commerce Building, which are still there today. And my grandfather was his project manager and then property manager after they were all built. So I used to go, like on Saturday mornings, he would go down check the mail, walk around, look at everything. And yeah. I'd go downtown with him. So that's where I, that was my early intro. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think that had a lot to do with this, that kind of hidden passion about real estate that kind of came back out when I got a little older. Yep. Mayor Bob Bolin was yeah. a big, big influencer in my life. Um, mentor, you know, worked with him from day one of Alliance until his death. Um, he was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, his great line, which a lot of people know and repeat is always leave it better than you found it. Yep. Um, the other line he told me one day, we would talk a lot. Um, I'd got, he had an office at TCU. I'd go down and see him when he was there and after his, after long after his political career, yeah, we talk on the phone and, um, but he made a statement to me one day. We we're talking about politics, and uh, you know he said, "Mike, I'm eighty percent Republican, <laughs> or eighty percent of the time I'm Republican, 
the other 20% I'm Democrat. Yeah. And I thought, man, we need more people like you. Yep. You know, let's get off of watching Fox News every day or watching CNN every day and I being over it. here, over there, which, I mean, it was just the perfect comment. And yep. that's why he got so much done. He was able to, I mean, he had strong principles and he had kind of his positions and beliefs and he was, you know, pro-business, pro-economic development, all that. But, you know, he's also open-minded enough to sit and listen to the other side and he crafted a lot of deals that way. Yep. And that's the way business gets done. It is. Imagine if you and I were trying to put a partnership together to build a building and, you know, your business principles were and your goals and objectives were all Republican and mine were all Democrat. Yeah. How would we ever get a deal done? Never. In today's environment. And be happy with ever. each other. And yeah. we Yeah. So. I um, have always thought it's crazy that it's like, here's a list of 30 things, and you either have to believe in all 30 of these things or all 30 of these things, but you can't mix and match even one or of the, you can't believe in 29 on this side and one on this side, right. or you, it's just, it's, it's crazy. And I think in the world we live in today, that list isn't 30, it's like a hundred. There's just no way you can force everybody to believe a hundred things without them thinking, I believe a little bit of this, a little bit of that, maybe more of this, but yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's sad that we've, you know, become so. Well, and on that so building polarized. analogy in business, it's all a building is, is the, is the output of a bunch of people working together. You work with the architect, the developer, the engineer, the city, the leasing agent, the broker that found you the land. And when it all comes together, there's a building standing. It's not the building just happens. It's a bunch. It's getting along with people. And the better you get along with them, probably the better deal it's going to be for everybody. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, one kind of on that point and a little bit of an aside, but I, I was at a, did a panel this today at lunch and um, I was talking to uh a guy who moved here from California, a real estate developer, and we're just talking about regulatory environment and getting deals done and the difference between California and Texas and, I, and incentives, um, which are so controversial. And I said, you know, people think of real estate developers, a lot of the, you know, I mean, we have a stigma sometimes with large parts of the community and the mm -hmm. population because people think you just blow through city hall and get stuff done, get a bunch of incentives. Real estate, I believe real estate development is the most regulated industry of all. From the time you buy a piece of property and yep. close and decide what you're going to build on it to the time you pull the certificate of occupancy, you have been in a public approval process probably 10 different steps along the way. You've either been in a public meeting or you've required public approval of something that you've done in order to get from that raw piece of land to a platted piece of land to a building permit to inspections along the way and then a final CO. And, you know, most people don't realize the that it's a hard business we're in, and it's not like we're skating through the system. We are scrutinized in everything we build, you know, by the public sector every step of the way. 
Oh. And it's back to your relationship. You know, it's it's the the successful developers are the ones who can put the right teams together and manage that process. Um, Have you heard and, of the app Nextdoor? No. So Nextdoor is like Facebook for neighborhoods. You you all join a group, and you have your forum, and people are chatting. And I've to to dovetail off what what you said. In most businesses, like if I'm going to make a new drink. I go talk to the customer. What do you like? What flavors do you like? What what branding do you like? And you really kind of come down with with what you're going to produce. Well, in development, you one you go ask the customer, "What do you want?" Well, I want something that's uh, smaller and more tech, and you know, I don't have a car, so I want it to be denser, and I don't mind having a four story high with my bedroom on the fourth floor. Just put in. So you do all this market research and the market tells you this is what it wants. But there's one more step in development. Then you go ask a group of people that one, most people will resort to no change as the default answer to most things. So you, the market tells you one thing and then you go ask, call it the neighborhood or whomever your constituents are. And you say, well, now what do you think? And the easy answer is like, we hate it. We don't want to see any change. And then you are supposed to go talk to the city government who then is getting voted on by the constituents. So it is the one business I think where even customer feedback is, could become worthless. And, and I always say like, you can have the best piece of land, best plan, best design, best tenant, best everything. And if your neighbors don't want it and the city doesn't want it, it just doesn't matter. You're exactly right. And I think next door, if you're listening and you're from next door, um, I think it's like created the mob, in my opinion. Uh, these people can communicate. Usually the loudest people to communicate are the people that don't want change the most. And we must get a call a day sometimes up here. It's like, we heard you're building a skyscraper on top of so-and-so's doghouse. It's like, no, we're not doing that. But the forum says, and then the, the Council member Shingleton's calling, did, did this did this happen? No, didn't. Da da yeah. da. Yeah. It's very tough to be an urban developer today. Very, very tough. And I don't see it getting any easier, to be totally honest with you. No. It's if, not. if somebody's if somebody's developing technology that can make getting making urban and and what this does at the end of the day is it makes things more costly. Projects take longer. There's less supply coming on market because it's taking so much longer and it eventually it all gets squeezed out on the consumer. And if it doesn't, then developers just don't build because they can't afford to build. I mean, it's a, I don't know. Yeah. I, I could, we could have a whole episode on this. Yeah. And you know, your picture you just painted in the next door app is kind of that it, it wasn't even in my piece of the steps you have to follow to get a yeah. project done. But that, like you said, that, those flares go up early on in the process or sometimes too le very late in the process. All right, Mike, thank you for being um, with me today. This has been an incredible conversation. I'm definitely going to be hitting you up for some more conversations. This Great. is awesome. Well, I was honored that you, you asked me to do it and I listened in preparation, I listened to some of your other podcasts. I mean, you've had some great guests. Yeah. I mean, Holt Lunsford, longtime yeah. friend of mine. Unbelievable guy. Yeah, Betsy was awesome. Um, yeah, you've had some good, some good, uh, some good podcasts. So thanks for 
You bet. Let putting me in the line. This is huge. Um, all right. Well, thank you. And um, yeah, that's a wrap. Great. Thanks. Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. You can also email us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.